This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 8th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, we've talked about the challenges in preventing COVID-19 in immunocompromised people in the past, caring for them once they're infected. Not all immunocompromise is the same, but people with many conditions are likely to be more susceptible to infection and certainly at higher risk of having severe disease and of dying once they're infected. So Lindsay, what do you see as the options for preventing and treating disease in these people? So Steve, as we think about prevention and treatment in this vulnerable population, there are several strategies we have to consider. First is prevention of infection. And this can be achieved through vaccination or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I think those are important to think about a little bit differently in that vaccination requires elicitation of immune response. Therefore, the immunocompromised person whom you vaccinate has the ability to respond to the vaccine and develop protective immune responses. Many of our immunocompromised patients can do that depending on how you think about being immunocompromised. Is it after an organ transplantation or cancer chemotherapy or a biologic therapy or predisposing condition like diabetes, where we have seen excessive rates of severe complications? All of these conditions have different impacts on the immune system. Most of them can respond to vaccination and have a protective immune response. However, in those individuals who are unable to develop a protective immune response, then passive immunity is an important consideration. And that can be achieved through things like monoclonal antibodies. And that can provide immunity for a period of time, the half-life or the duration of a level of the monoclonal that's likely to be protective against the circulating virus. So I think those are the most important considerations, but those are given to individuals at risk, not currently infected, and therefore they're a large community. We do have considerations of post-exposure prophylaxis, but currently there are no agents authorized in this space. And lastly, we have early treatment. And this requires diagnostics, being able to diagnose who's infected early and therefore appropriate for early treatment, such as antiviral therapy, including remdesivir, nematrevir, molnupiravir, as well as monoclonal antibodies such as bebtilovimab. So these are all different considerations depending upon the host, their susceptibility, and where they are in illness. Lindsay, I think you bring up an important consideration in these individuals, which is the duration of their immune compromise. There are people who have immunocompromising conditions which last their entire lives. Then there are people who are temporarily on corticosteroids or some other immunosuppressing drug, but that they will change and return back to their normal immune state. So how you construct a preventive regimen is really going to vary with duration. Today, we published a study that took a detailed look at the course of disease in a small number of highly immunocompromised patients. So who were these patients? Steve, the study included five patients with evidence of persistent SARS-CoV-2 infection. All of them had underlying malignancies, including two with B-cell malignancies, a patient with thymoma, one with a marginal cell lymphoma, and another with myelodysplastic syndrome. Two had undergone peripheral blood stem cell transplants in the past as part of their therapy, and four of them were being treated with the anti-B-cell antibody, rituximab, 
an agent which abrogates the ability to mount new antibody responses. The patient who was not receiving rituximab had good syndrome, which despite its name is anything but good. This occurs in some thymoma patients and results in hypogammaglobulinemia and other immune dysfunction, causing increased susceptibility to infections and to autoimmune phenomena. This is clearly a group at very high risk for progression of disease. Because of this risk, two were treated with a monoclonal antibody and two with convalescent sera. One patient died of progressive disease while the others survived. However, all had prolonged PCR positivity, which went out as far as 300 days from the original diagnosis in at least one patient. So Eric, as you note, this report of multiple patients show how complex immune dysregulation, immune deficiency may be. And that speaks to the complexity as we take care of patients and what we think their immunocompetence is. Obviously, in these patients, it's severe deficiency. What we also see in these cases is the risk of viral evolution in that individuals who are unable to clear the virus can have prolonged infection with multiple rounds of viral replication, allowing the virus to figure out how to escape partial emerging host defenses, such as antibody or T-cell responses. And this creates complexity as we think about controlling SARS-CoV-2, as there are patients who are unable to clear it and therefore allowing the virus to figure out how to escape host defenses. What we need to remember is that our current therapies, they augment, they don't replace the host immune response to clear virus. And therefore, in our patients with profound immunodeficiency, we have to think a little more deeply about how to control and eradicate infection. The authors did careful immunophenotyping of these patients. What did they learn? So these investigators got to at least partially characterize the immune responsiveness at a few time points from some of the patients. This wasn't systematic sampling, so we only got some patients at some times. However, their antibody levels are difficult to interpret because most of them received exogenous antibodies. Nevertheless, at least two of the patients had very low titers at a few time points during treatment. In three patients, there were low to undetectable B cell counts, while another had low B and T cells. Two patients did have detectable T cell responses to peptides derived from the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, while a third did not. Altogether, this group of patients had rather profound immune defects. I think this highlights how challenging it is to define and measure immunocompetence. In some ways, this is terrific because it demonstrates the redundancy in our immune system so pathogens can't outsmart us. On the other side, it's very challenging clinically and from a research standpoint to understand who is immunocompetent against the pathogen and therefore able to clear it and is not at risk for more severe infection. It shows us how complicated our patients are, and how adaptive we have to be when we care for them. Yes, I double down on that, Lindsay. We're pretty good at measuring antibody. We're less good at measuring cell-mediated immune responses. And we have very limited ability to quantify a defect overall. So we know that some people with certain immune defects are susceptible to some infections, others to other infections. And we're not really sure of why that should be true. There are all kinds of strange immunocompromising conditions, 
which don't make patients susceptible to everything, only to a subset of pathogens. And it's not exactly clear in most cases why that should be the case. In these patients, there were both B-cell defects and in many of them T-cell defects. So they really had problems with more than one arm of the immune system. Although, once again, it's difficult to say the extent of those problems. So Eric, to focus in a little bit on SARS-CoV-2, the T-cells are able to recognize a larger variety of viral epitopes, likely providing broader immunity. And we don't quite know how to measure that easily. And therefore, the immune protection that some individuals may have on the T-cell side of the house is very hard for us to measure and quantitate, yet is clearly present as it likely provides a lot of cross-protection as viral strains evolve, mutate, and spread that may well limit the severity of illness. But it's part of the immune response that we just don't measure routinely or easily to be able to bring into our common clinical discourse. Yes, Lindsay, we have talked quite a bit about what a protective response would look like in SARS-CoV-2 infection. And we've largely concentrated on antibodies because they're so easy to measure. But it's certainly true that measurements of T-cell responses after infection or vaccination can be measured. They've been measured by a number of groups, and some of them are both substantial and without any scale bar to the word substantial and long-lasting. And they really could be very important in preventing perhaps not infection as much as influencing disease severity. Let's get back to the question of viral evolution. The authors of this study aimed to see what would happen to the virus in these patients. Even though the patients had weak immune responses of their own, they were all treated with remdesivir at at least one point during their illness, and most received, as you've said, exogenous antibodies. So what did happen to the virus over time? Well, here there was a striking result. Two patients received the monoclonal antibody bamlanivimab. In both patients, virus isolated at later time points acquired mutations that markedly decreased neutralization by this monoclonal antibody. No such mutations were seen in the patients treated with convalescent plasma, which contains a mixture of antibody specificities, antibodies that bind to different epitopes, or in the patient who did not receive any antibody therapy. In some ways, these patients provide a kind of controlled experiment to look at the selection by antibody. Since they are unable to effectively mount their own immune responses, what we're seeing is just the viral evolution in response to these infused antibodies. Still, it's important to point out that four patients survived, even though some continued to shed virus. And this gets back to the question of whether their T-cell responses that they were able to mount were important in helping them deal with infection. Eric, I'd add another dimension to that, in that disease pathogenesis may be related to aberrant host response. And in the context of a weakened immune system, one may have difficulty in clearing the virus, but one may also have a blunted immune response, and therefore some of the immunopathogenesis doesn't occur. Supposition, small number of cases, but it's consistent with that emerging understanding, and it speaks to a complex dynamic between infection and disease. And in these patients, chronic viral infection with intermittent therapy, 
that allowed viral evolution and escape because it was inadequate in the absence of a proper host response, but a lack of severe illness in the absence of the inflammation of a host response. So I think it's an interesting dynamic for us to study, difficult to draw firm conclusions in anecdotes, but consistent with our emerging understanding of the biology. I agree, Lindsay. And let me layer on one more piece of complexity. We can measure antibodies in different ways. We tend to look at one parameter, which is neutralization of virus by antibody. That's measured by incubating the virus with antibody and seeing how well that blocks infection of cells by virus. But there are antibodies that bind the viral proteins, but fail to neutralize. These antibodies still could be very important in disease, as we know that they can be important in clearing the viral particles from the circulation via phagocytic cells, and also have immune modulatory activities, which might affect the course of disease in indirect ways. So there's a lot more going on than the one activity that we're generally measuring. Completely agree. And I think this raises a clinical challenge to our community in those patients with a profoundly weakened immune system who are infected and unable to clear it. How do we look at our emerging pharmacologic repertoire, which we'll likely have to use in combination to eradicate infection? And I think we need to carefully study and define treatment approaches for our patients who have an incredibly weakened immune system that's different than for the rest of us. A very small group, but a very important group for us to really define which therapies are effective and how to use them in combination. Large studies are not possible, but targeted, intense, small studies are likely needed to be able to properly eradicate this virus in that setting. It's a great point, Lindsay, because clearly our antivirals are working in concert with our immune system to help clear virus. When we use antivirals in a setting where viral clearance doesn't occur, we're maximizing the selection for antiviral resistance. And so these are the patients who simultaneously need antivirals the most and present the greatest risk of developing resistance to antivirals. So I think you're right. We have to think hard about strategies to use antivirals better in this subset of patients. So is it likely that viral evolution is accelerated in people like those described in this report? So Steve, it depends a bit on what we mean by accelerated. Because I think the question in my mind is, is this the setting where viral evolution will occur? And will it occur in clinically relevant ways? Multiple rounds of viral replication while intermittently exposed to selective pressure, is what's likely to bring out resistance. Resistance to antiviral therapies, but also resistance to host defenses. So I think that in the setting of profoundly immunocompromised individuals who may well be infected for 100, 200, 300 days, I don't know if we'd call that accelerated as much as it's an opportunity for the virus to better co-adapt to the human condition and therefore replicate more efficiently. And that likely is going on. Whether or not it creates better fitness, whether or not it creates increased transmissibility, whether or not it creates therapeutic 
antiviral resistance is hard to determine, however, may well occur in individual cases and requires very careful clinical strategies and management until we have more potent therapies that can really eradicate infection. Another way to put that is that the chances of mutation occurring are roughly the same with each cycle of viral replication. And so if you have replication in a thousand immunocompetent people, you may get the similar number of cycles of replication as you do in a handful of immunocompromised people. So mutation is occurring all across the population. And the question is, where is selection occurring that drives evolution? There's a lot of selection by the immune system. So there's a tremendous amount of selection and evolutionary pressure going on in the general population. We do get to see evolution occurring over a sustained period in individuals, but at a population level, I'm not so sure that this is the group that's really seeding everything else. But Eric, there also is the concept of serial selection, where certain mutations become more advantageous when other mutations occur. And how we think about that in vitro and in vivo, and in light of the amount of replication going on globally across individuals, I think is challenging. But the serial passage lends to a different kind of mutational portfolio than limited passage. I agree, Lindsay. It's just important to remember that there are different selective pressures acting on the virus. Here we've concentrated on selection by monoclonal antibodies and selection by antivirals. But of course, on a population level, the major pressure on the virus is immune pressure, and that's occurring in immune individuals and not in this population. So the emergence of new viral strains that are successful in the presence of host immunity, that's not happening in these individuals. That's much more likely to happen in people with relatively normal immune systems. Part of that, Eric, is also the goal of selection from the virus's perspective. The virus has little interest in making us ill. In fact, if it causes no illness, but replicates and transmits, it is even more successful. So part of selection, theoretically, may be a phenotype which causes less illness. Yes. While that's true, I'm not sure that we can know what direction the virus is going in. And so there has been a lot of speculation that the virus is becoming less and less virulent. And people have taken the fact that the death rate has dropped as evidence of that. But it seems likely that the death rate is dropping because of pre-existing immunity, because of levels of vaccination and earlier infection cycles more than anything else. And we don't know that the virus is going to become less virulent or less able to cause disease. We can't really predict that direction. But you're absolutely right. It certainly is a direction that it could go in. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.